The reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 to 27, and is on page 886, or page 1,424 in the large print Bibles. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took, who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, 
Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors and royal advisers crowded round them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Something in me was half hoping that Caroline wouldn't turn up this morning because I would, I would love to read that passage. With <laughs> it's, a, it's a fabulous passage, isn't it? And there's some wonderful storytelling in there. The way that the lists are given over and over again, the five or six different musical instruments are repeated each time, and the three names of the three young men are mentioned each time, and even their clothing is itemized each time, all the things they, they were wearing. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of, uh, of storytelling. And uh, today is our last Sunday with my favorite passage as our theme. And uh, it's actually my second nibble at this subject. And I wanted to talk about this passage because it's played a particularly significant and important part uh, in, in my life in, in years gone by. Um, I hope this doesn't become too personal. If it does, you'll need to forgive me and blame the person who invited us to talk about our favorite passages. Uh, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, all the ways in which your, your love, your purpose, your justice, and your saving power is, is revealed within it. And we pray this morning you will uh, open this passage up for us, familiar as it is, to some fresh new understanding of its uh, significance for our own lives. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, our first slide. Norman. There we are. Well, you didn't expect to start there. Um, in the 1960s, uh, President Nasser of Egypt uh, initiated a huge technical program to build the Aswan High Dam. Um, and uh, it's a gigantic uh, achievement of civil engineering, and it's transformed many aspects of life in Egypt. It supplies virtually all the electrical power in Egypt, controls the flow of the Nile, allows irrigation and uh, controls and control of the water supply and so on. It's been enormously important. Uh, it's also had uh, a huge impact upstream into Sudan. And if we look at the next slide, um, behind the dam is a huge lake, Lake Nasser. Uh, it is rightly called. Uh, this lake stretches for some hundreds of miles. Uh, in places it's very, very wide um, and it's the reservoir, the, the water storage for, for the dam and, and for Egypt. Um, 
It was in many ways a disaster, the uh, formation of, of this lake. It flooded, as I said, several hundred miles of the Nile Valley, and with it flooded uh, an immense number of archaeological sites and treasures. The uh, United, body, United Nations body, UNESCO, mounted a, uh, an immense archaeological rescue operation, and uh, many of those buildings and sites were, were rescued, including the Abu, Abu Simbel Abu uh, Temple, uh, which some of you may, may have seen. Less well known is the fact that, uh, inundated by the lake at that time, were an immense number of churches and religious sites relating to the Nubian church, which flourished in northern Sudan from about the year 500 to about the year 1500. Um, virtually all of those have now, now been lost. That is a huge loss to um, the world's archaeological understanding. However, um, an immense amount was done to rescue those, uh, those archaeological remains. And uh, if we move on, I, I could give you quite a lecture on that, as it's been a, an interest of, of mine. Um, they had almost completed their archaeological rescue operation, and they were about to leave a place called Faras uh, in northern Sudan, and they felt they had found all that could properly be found. And as they were about to complete their work and move off, uh, they decided to have one more look at a particular mound. And extraordinarily, uh, they uncovered the greatest treasure of, um, of that rescue operation. They discovered an entire cathedral uh, dating back to the 10th century, uh, inundated with sand, just preserved, as it were. It had uh, just filled up with sand from the desert, and the entire cathedral had been preserved in, not exactly pristine, but in remarkably excellent condition. This is a model of it. Um, and so you can see it was a very large um, building, and uh, <clears throat> uh, some of the roofs had fallen in, and, and things had happened over the centuries, but essentially the whole building was found. And the particular treasures um, that, that I want to talk about this morning were the wall murals. The walls of the entire, just as you would go into a, an Orthodox church today, and you might well find every inch of the inside is covered with uh, mosaics or paintings or icons. So in this, in this church, dating back to the 10th century, all the walls were, were covered with uh, murals and paintings of a distinctive style. Many of these can now be seen in uh, the National Museum in Khartoum, should you have cause for a stopover in Khartoum on your way to somewhere more exotic. Um, the National Museum, Museum is a remarkable place to go to, and many of the remains are there. The others um, are in a, the National Museum in Warsaw, and uh, again, should you be going there, it's worth asking for those and seeing them. The very first major uh, mural uh, to come to light was the one in the next slide, this one here. Um, 
it's, it's big, it's huge. The, the figures in this are larger than life-size. Um, it covered a, a, a whole wall, um, and as I say, this is now, uh, can be seen in, in Khartoum, and is uh, an extraordinary experience to, to stand in front of it. The colors, of course, just preserved in sand for a thousand years, um, are still vivid, and uh, it portrays our story for today. Three men in the fiery furnace and towering over them the figure who is at the heart of this story. The fourth man, like a son of the gods, a divine figure who appears in the fiery furnace to protect and defend and deliver uh, the, the three young men. Um, it's a very, very, very powerful image. <clears throat> if you want to see more of these paintings, if you Google Faras Cathedral, F-A-R-A-S Cathedral on, on Google or something, you'll find a, a great abundance of, of, of um, material. <clears throat> that was in the 60s. Many years later, I was working in South Sudan at a little Bible college. And uh, at the beginning, uh, in April one year, which was the beginning of our academic year, we gathered. Um, we would have been about 60 students, I suppose, if I remember correctly. Um, and not everyone came back. We were in the middle of uh, the early days of a civil war. Uh, the rural areas to, from which most of the students came were, many of them were very, very dangerous places. Uh, the rebel forces were recruiting by force often, and not all our students came back. We didn't know their stories, we didn't know why they weren't there. Uh, many of them, it turned out, had been uh, recruited by force or whatever into uh, the rebel forces. Um, Later, we learned some of them, we learned of their, their deaths in the, in the Civil War. We were hearing news of the death of pastors and church leaders and friends in, in the Civil War. And we were gathering in this little Bible school, uh, really in a very remote rural area on the, on the edges of a, a little town called, called Mundri. It was actually a very frightening place to be at that point. Uh, nobody knew which way the war was going to go. The town was a garrison town for northern <coughs> government troops who were hostile to everyone around, hostile to Christians, hostile to us. And there was always the possibility of our students being arrested. Some of them came from a tribal group where they would almost certainly have been murdered had they been arrested. Our students had to go around in, in groups, uh, not in uh, isolated, so that we uh, had some check on how everyone was. It was a very frightening and uncertain time. Were we right to have gathered everyone together? Well, we certainly couldn't send them home now. You know, and uh, it was a very tense and anxious time in which we were trying to form uh, men and women for, for Christian ministry in that place. Then uh, every Wednesday afternoon, uh, we held a community communion service and uh, one of those early weeks, I don't remember exactly when, but one of those early weeks in that academic year, this passage 
was assigned for reading and reflection. And uh, actually, it was my task to, to preach on it. And uh, I, I don't need now to sort of expound to you what I said. I mean, I think you can anticipate it. Had you been there, you could have done it yourself because the resonance between this story and the situation in which we were living every moment of every day at that moment was incredibly powerful. And I, there are two themes, I suppose, which stood out for us as really powerful themes um, and which I just want us to focus on a little bit this morning. The first is before the fiery furnace and that little phrase, but if not, but if not. You want us to bow down and worship your, your golden image, O king. Uh, you, you want us to just make lip service. You want us just to do uh, the, the minimal physical act of devotion to your golden image. We cannot do that. Our God is able to deliver us from this situation. We believe he will deliver us from this situation. But if not, who he is, who he is requires of us worship and devotion which goes beyond anything you lay before us. But if not. And that little phrase became enormously powerful for us. Um, in, in the college community. And, and the second aspect uh, was from the story of the fiery furnace itself and the uh, extraordinary appearance in, in the furnace of a fourth figure which so terrified King Nebuchadnezzar. A figure like the, the son of the gods. Um, a figure who in Christian thinking across the centuries has always been identified with the figure of Christ himself. Uh, who is about, his presence there is about the presence of God in the furnace, in the fire, whether you are delivered or not. The story, of course, ends with, um, with, their, with their deliverance. This story became so important for us that, in fact, we painted it ourselves in a, a sort of cultural, ver our own cultural version of it. I think that's the next slide. We were building a new chapel at the time, and on the back wall of, of the chapel, it was designed by an American member of staff called Mark Nichol, but painted by uh, students, painted by our Sudanese students. We did our own recreation of that Faras painting. We took that, that painting and uh, reinvented it for our situation. And this is the... <laughs> The extraordinary outcome, I mean, just a wonderful outcome. The, the flames are as powerful and as uh, evocative as, as before. Um, and the three men in the furnace had the physical features of the, the main different tribal groupings in, in South Sudan. Two of them are missing, you'll notice. They were on uh, doors next. There was a wall and two doors, and the other two figures were painted on the doors which at some point in the Civil War were burnt. Isn't that ironic? 
Um, so what stands today, and I believe it is still there, I haven't been back for some years, I believe it is still there on the back wall of the chapel is the, uh, the figure of Christ as the fourth figure in the, in the furnace and, uh, and one of the uh, three men. Just to complete the story, we also uh, painted angels on all the doors of the chapel and uh, uh, I believe they still survive. Here are two of the uh, angels um, painted on the chapel doors, again bearing Sudanese, southern Sudanese features. Perhaps we could go back to the other picture and sort of live with that at this point. Um, that story, this passage from the Bible is still talked about in Sudanese context to, the, to this day. And its discovery uh, or its rediscovery by the community was, was very important. So just bringing the threads together there, I, I just want to emphasize those two themes, which there, there are a number of very powerful themes that can come out of this story. But the first is this, I think, around that phrase, but if not. Life has many contexts where the temptation is to bow the knee to golden idols, to power and oppression. It's literally experienced, uh, as we reminded in our prayers today, by Christians across the Middle East and elsewhere in terms of fiery persecution. And so across the Middle East, there are many thousands, millions of our Christian brothers and sisters who have to face that question to bow the knee and for whom this passage, to whom this passage speaks about the God whose authority, reality, truth, and call transcends all of that. Our situations are, on the whole, less dramatic, but nonetheless real. There are the golden idols of professional life in different ways. I don't need to spell out how uh, those idols present themselves to us and call on us to bow the knee. And there are the personal idols of our personal ambitions and plans and hopes, our careers, our desires for house and home, for family for the right kind of education for our children, for the right kind of privilege for, our, for those who are for our children, for respect and honor and advancement. The heart of the matter is what comes first, what comes first and whether we bow our knee to the variety of golden idols that present themselves to us. Or are we willing to stand in that incredibly risky, vulnerable place with these three men who said, we believe in the God of heaven and earth. We believe in the one who is higher than all the manufactures of your hands, O king. O king, live forever. Um, and we, that's the one we believe in. We believe he can deliver us. We believe he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow the knee. And since those days, that has been for me the heart of what Christian discipleship is about, the heart of what it is to follow Jesus. 
the heart of what it is to live in the light of the reality of God. Our spirituality has shifted, I think, in a, in a way which is not necessarily helpful in the direction of what can God do for me? What experience can I have out of my faith in God, my, uh, my seeking of God? How can I, even how can I be changed by my faith and my encounter with God? I think this passage calls us to back to something much more fundamental, that actually it is who God is as the source of all, the heart of all, the source of our life, the source of all that is good, rich, and loving, the one who alone in the world has the right to call for our devotion and worship. And it doesn't matter in the end whether he delivers us or does not deliver us. But if not, he is the only one before whom we should bow the knee. He is still to be worshipped rather than all the golden idols of the world. And the second great theme of this, this passage, or so it appeared to us at that time, was that he is the one who comes and stands with us in the fire. There are many contexts where we feel alone, many contexts in life's journey in which we feel profoundly alone. Illness, struggling with addictions, mental illness perhaps, fears over finance, fears over employment, family worries, concern about our older relatives, our children, about our relationships, our marriage, our singleness. All the temptations to give up on our discipleship and in some sense bow the knee to something else. The big climax of this story is that he is with us in the fire. In the fires of distress, in the fires of persecution, in the fires of desperation and need. This is where he is found. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Delivered or not, healed or not, triumphant or not, we are safe because he is with us and he is the only one worthy of worship, our total commitment, devotion, and love. Time is running away, but I, I've waited a long time to share this with you. Uh, you can see why it has been so important for me. And what was the meaning for the ancient Nubians? At the time that painting was, was, was painted, there was no persecution, no, not in a significant way for the church in Nubia. It was a time of actually of prosperity and, and a, a time of stability, no particular threat. And I was always puzzled by why it was such a prominent feature of that church and actually of many other churches. Characteristically in the churches of ancient Nubia, on the north wall, um, there was a painting of the nativity of the incarnation. And then on the south wall, there was this painting painting of the fiery furnace. Why? What was that about? Some years later, and I can only assume this is the, the meaning, 
because I, I don't think there is any evidence as to what the Nubians themselves thought. But the Orthodox Easter liturgy on Easter Eve has as a central text the text of the fiery furnace because it speaks of salvation, deliverance, and resurrection. That's why it occurs in the Orthodox liturgy. And this church was part of the Orthodox family. So I personally have no doubt that what was being proclaimed in that ancient Nubian church was that when you came in the church from this side, you passed a great wall painting that spoke of incarnation of God's coming amongst us as a baby and of uh, Emmanuel, God with us. And that on that side, the last thing you saw before you went out of the church was this particular way of capturing the story of deliverance and salvation and, and resurrection, the, the gospel in its twin pillars. I'm going to ask Helen to come and join me for a moment, just for a few minutes towards the end of our, our service. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> um, Helen's been with us over this weekend. We had a, a gathering last night. Um, we've had a, gatherings in the week talking about our partnership with, with Egypt. Um, I'd just like to ask you this question, which you, was on my notes and then you stole from me. Um, how do you think this story would speak to the Egyptian church in its contemporary situation now? Um, right now, um, so, Egypt is um, coming out of uh, the aftermath of um, four years of um, two um, revolutions. Um, and in 2000, I was seeing how, as Andy was speaking, how I could reflect on Egypt in this story. Um, and in the story, obviously, you've got three people that uh, were in that fiery furnace. But actually, it was interesting when I thought about it in, um, just to say Egypt has 10% Christians in that country. And when I thought about it, actually, in 2012 was a key time where 51% um, of the population uh, of the electorate voted um, effectively the Muslim Brotherhood into uh, run Egypt. Um, so effectively, that split the country with 51% and 49%. Um, a year, well, six months later, the people realized that the agenda that they had was to Islamize the country. And they, um, the constitution meant that they, um, it, most of the Muslims didn't want it to go that way. And obviously, certainly the Christians didn't, which led to... Uh, them coming together and uniting a year later to remove Morsi. So I see in this situation that that year was a real test for the people in Egypt. And I think any of us, when we're under pressure, we find out who we really are um, and what we really want. And I think that's what the Egyptian people did. And to me, it showed the strength of the people and the will of the people to not... Um, come under the Islamist uh, agenda uh, because that wasn't what they wanted. Um, so that's what I wanted to say mm. on that. Thank you. And secondly, um, the Alexandria School of Theology, how does it respond, live? How does it continue to do its work of training Christian ministers in such a context? Um, well, in a more broader context, perhaps about the church as well. Um, to me, 
um, during the whole time, particularly after President Morsi was removed from power, the Christians in the country, in Upper Egypt, uh, many churches were burnt, um, and great forgiveness to those that burnt those churches was evident to everybody in the country. So enormous testimony. And for me, um, this last year, perhaps the most poignant time was when uh, 21 um, Coptic Christians were beheaded brutally um, in Libya. And I don't know if you watched the videos, hopefully not, but at least read that their final words were to call out to the Lord, um, but looked extremely peaceful when that happened. So this spoke volumes to the people. Obviously, many Christians have fled Egypt, um, but to Christians, it's to be about the trust in God and standing firm that he, he is the rock, and actually knowing that the citizenship is in heaven, and it's the long term. It looked extremely bleak um, in 2012 to December 2012, uh, before we began to see um, people deciding that things needed to change. Um, in terms of AST, it's absolutely a key time because um, the Christians and Muslims make up now 95% um, of the um, population. Um, there is a 5% atheist, and that's come out of people now seriously questioning what does it mean to be a Muslim? What does it mean to be a Christian? Um, so particularly the church on the border to Dakhria Square where the big revolution took place and people demonstrated in their millions um, offered a hospital and a way of help to people. So AST at the moment, um, its strap line has always been to uh, train and prepare uh, Christian leaders. So it's not just an ordination college. It's actually to take posts and leadership positions in society. And one of the things that is going to happen in this coming new year in March is the local elections, uh, where for, for the first time in 50 years, I understood that um, they have 4,000 um, seats are available for Christians um, to um, take up those posts. So there's a new openness to be active in civil society, and that's what AST is about. And this October, we're going to start up a new branch. We have two branches, one in Cairo and Alexandria, which we had from when we began in 2005, 10 years ago. And we have a new branch starting up in October in Upper Egypt. And I commented last night when I asked how many applications we have. We have as many just for Upper Egypt, where many of the Christians are, the majority of Christians are, compared to both um, Cairo and Alex combined. So that's one of the new um, key things that we're starting to do, which was a vision before the revolution in 2009. We wanted to do this. Interestingly, the Anglican Church doesn't have any um, institutions at all or any churches um, in Upper Egypt. So this is a completely new venture and has been um, okayed by Synod back in May. Yeah. Lovely. Thanks. Thanks, Helen, very much.